think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 94 of the Boys in Short Pants. I'm Laurent Carboneau. It's the 95th episode. Gronk is the drink. Oh, come on. Gronk is the drink. Did you say Gronk that time? No, it's Gronk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, it's in Rainville. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, welcome to, to Late Summer. The, the the Late Summer Special, as the, we record now once every three weeks is our regular the uh, calm, format. The calm both before and after the storm, in this case. Although a lot of podcasts go on break for the summer, so... Yeah, that's true. Here we are. We are work, to- toiling. Working, working for the people. Yeah, for the people. Great song. Uh, it's, it's a banger. Um... Yeah, so uh, you want to talk a little bit about... Why is, it, why is it always me? You always lead in with, uh, you wanted to talk about... Well, I don't know, just uh, often you're the one who... We wanted to. Okay. It's well, a we mutual wanted to... decision. It's not your car, it's our car. I would say this one in particular was uh, was an Etienne impetus. Uh-huh. Uh, but the... you want to talk about uh, the, the quietness of summer in Ottawa. Oh, no, I was just... I, I thought it was, I mean... You're you're exposing how the sausage is made here. I just thought it would be a good lead-in for um, viewers at home or listeners, if if you will, uh, to get a sense of sort of where Ottawa is at, like what Ottawa's like in early August of <laughs> the long weekend week, which is everyone's on vacation. Yes, and I would say, in fact, this summer has been remarkable for how busy it's been uh, compared to your run-of-the-mill Ottawa summer. Even with Parliament not properly in session god damn it cat we still had a couple of uh of sitting days and sorry for for folks there we had a little bit of an intern uh crisis in the next room um yeah we've had a couple sitting days the the intern's been real testy since he realized he's not going to get his volunteer hour money (laughs) exactly he's very pissed off he thought this only the kielbergers could administer the program he He was very very salty now um yes but we've had four sitting days or sorry we've had two so far and we've got two more coming this this month um and we will have uh well we've had a lot of committee meetings uh ethics which is currently undertaking a study of um the ethical the arrangements in place to ensure ethical behavior in government which is cheeky and finance, of course, which is looking at the uh, WE contribution agreement. And I think there's one or two other committees, isn't there? That are meeting intermittently. Oh. Canada China's meeting tomorrow, no, for instance. No, I mean specifically on the WE stuff. Oh. Like, I think OGO, OGO or something. Yep, OGO is doing a... Which stands for... Well. Uh, government operations. There you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and, and like the fisheries committee and a bunch of other committees are all meeting about... Like, yeah. the ag committee is meeting about, like... I got the notice today. I think it's like COVID and chicken farmers or something okay. like that. Like... I mean, the committees broadly are doing what committees do, which is sort of look after the, or dig into the uh, economic sectors that they represent, yeah. and sort of they're a forum for stakeholders to raise concerns about what's going on and hopefully have their voices heard in Ottawa. Yes, fisheries more than most. Um, I was talking about agriculture. Yes, that one too. I mean, actually, I would say those are the most like industry specific, except for maybe Indu with like telecoms and a couple other things. Yeah, there there isn't like a forestry committee. Natural resources, um, I guess. But even then, those yeah, are more broadly focused. Yes. yes, I would say that like ag and fisheries are specifically committees that were set up to look after the interests of two very influential and politically powerful uh interest groups yes but they also track directly no i'm not saying that it's like that no no but they they track they track directly with government departments which which is another sort of way of looking at committees they broadly align with sort of how the government is structured yes and some of them like there's like oddities like public accounts which is basically looking at auditor general's reports yeah it's an odd one anyway sorry so, so, this is kind of getting sidetracked here as we often do so moral of the story is typically ottawa is really dead this has Super been a, uh, a a spicier summer than usual it's been a hotter summer than usual in ottawa um people have been confined to their houses more than usual um but this week in particular has been really dead which i think has helped somewhat kill the wee story yeah. Um, much to the government's, uh, what's the opposite of dismay? Relief. Relief, sure. Um, yeah, I was trying, I feel like there should be another word there. Um, be, like, there was no, I, I didn't, th- I couldn't think of any notable stories early in the week, uh, Monday or Tuesday about the week. Well, and Monday, of course, was a, was the, uh, long weekend here in, in Ontario. And, and a bunch of other provinces. Yes. Um, not, not Quebec, though. Not Quebec. Yes. Um, 
So this might be the break it needs to sort of kill the story and to make Wii stories less palatable. Um, it, it does seem sort of weird offhand to say like a one week break will kill a story and like if people come up with like mildly interesting reporting about the Wii people, it'll be less attractive a week from now. But if you sort of think uh, yeah. of, of like if someone had SNC scandal reporting that they suddenly released, like I don't know that there would be a great deal of interest. I think part for it. of it is that the last, basically the last thing that happened last week as far as official Ottawa is concerned, was the Prime Minister and his Chief of Staff testifying about this at a committee. And, like, that, in some sense, it's like, if you can't poke too many holes there, and then it's followed by a pretty quiet week, that's going to put a lot of things to bed. Yes. And, And like, I don't know, some stuff, some more stuff might come out about this, so I don't want to prejudge it. Yeah, all the big names have been called, all, all the star witnesses, if you will. Um, calling the third-tier quarterback up to testify is, is not necessarily going to have the desired effect of restarting it. Um, so I, I think the Prime Minister's testimony left a lot of questions. I certainly had a lot of questions coming out of it. Um, but I do fear that his questions will sort of move past and never really know the actual answer to. Yes. Um, As is sometimes the case in life. Although, Sometimes it's Chinatown, and uh, you, you move on. Although the gossip in Ottawa, if if you are to believe the gossip, and there's there's a good, I believe, Paul Wells rule that uh, if everyone is talking about it, then it's probably not true. Um, but as the impending cabinet shuffle yeah. um, that has cracked from, or that has broken from the rumor mill and into the actual papers. Uh, t- I would count TBD. it... Yeah, I would count it as pretty likely in some format. I mean, it's been a year since the election. Uh, we've had an unprecedented global pandemic. Uh, Bill Morneau has managed to just fill multiple diapers with his errors in the last <laughs> couple of years, political and otherwise. And I, I think it's, yeah, like, I, I don't think it's unlikely that they would take this time in particular as an opportunity to have a bit of a reset. Um, so here's just yeah. the, the pros and cons. The pro is... Of having a shuffle in general or more yes, specific? Okay. Uh, of having... Well, the it, it's a more no shuffle. I don't yeah, think anyone, I don't think anyone your, is talking yeah, about it. If you move your finance minister, you got to move some stuff around around that. Yes. But and, remember when uh, remember when the uh, President Treasury Board left sometime oh, in uh, oh, January of last year? That would, turned out to be an event. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't tried to throw him under the bus, frankly. This is all Scott Bryson's <laughs> idea. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's been mention of it being... Uh, retributive or retributional cabinet shuffle what make of that what you will lovely um broadly the idea is it's a good way to kill the scandal get more no who's one of the key actors and perhaps one of the actors most implicated in this out um can't really touch bardish chagger the uh the flip side of that is does it reignite and is it sort of an admission of guilt so the government has to weigh the pros and cons between sort of putting a little more steam back into the story and another sure. week of bad headlines about it in exchange for moving Morneau out and some of the others. And, like, God knows if Morneau will even stay in government if he's uh, yeah, if like, he's moved out of finance. I do think, for one thing, with, like, the Harper government, and I will, I will give them this, it's that if Bill Morneau had been finance minister in Stephen Harper's cabinet and he had had the, the ethics thing about forgetting about his uh, holding company that owned the villa in France, I think he would have been out on his ear pretty quickly well maybe not sorry. then and there but like soon afterwards that one not live to the uh no i'm just saying like that was the first one <laughs> like uh i think it's they you know they had tolerance for a lot of stuff but like yeah the, not for this kind of thing the pierre so Polyev... the 16 dollar orange juice i would say compares fairly favorably <laughs> to the forty one thousand dollar <laughs> free trip yeah i i've yet to see the uh, I t- or not the itinerary, but the the cost sheet of that. I, I'm not. I've never figured out how those numbers equate with the numbers like on the Wii website. Yeah, the the Wii website and in their press release, the they Wii like website actually we should specify forty uh, four thousand a hundred dollars or thirty nine hundred bucks US, or which whatever, was a very different figure was. than what Morneau had said. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's that, but it's also supposed to be like this all inclusive barring flights and it sort of seems like they just popped in while they were in the country so would it be the same cost it's not really clear no anyways something that we might eventually get more documents about the the only other development i see coming is i believe the finance committee is supposed to have a round of documents yeah the and there's been a trickle service yeah there's been no, a but trickle like, for but yeah nothing for public service yet no the, the documents that have been tabled so far are, are the documents yeah. um that are 
an official has testified and then promised to provide yes a written response to a question yes but the committee has a motion that is pending yes um to not subpoena but request yeah. a, a whole track of documents and that's outstanding and should come due well any the, day now the, the, isn't the, it? the deadline was like a month after the motion was presented which was yes so it should be any day now basically any, yeah. yeah and then we'll we'll see if that's redacted we'll see, yeah and that's the thing is like uh, i think i mentioned this last episode so apologies if you're hearing this again uh but when the health committee requested uh, documents about the government's covid response in february um the idea was that the documents would be given to the law clerk who would then make any redactions necessary to protect the identity of public servants etc um not to apply standard access to information redactions. yeah because they're very different yeah it's, it's a wholly different process uh but they came sort of with access to information redactions which i believe should have been uh quite like should have been put forward as a you know question of privilege, a breach of privilege or contempt 100 percent. uh because it was uh but if if that reproduces that I dearly hope that the finance committee will take that step because uh, they really should. I would expect so. Yes. Um, so let's leave, well, not really we there, but let, let's take a, sort of our specialized angle on the we controversy, um, which is there was an exchange between uh, Cooper, Michael Cooper, conservative member of parliament, um, and the Kielbergers, mm-hmm. um, where, he, <laughs> yes, okay. where he asked them about... Um, their registration i mean multiple mps asked about the registration but i think it was in, and to be uh, clear that the registration to lobby which they do yes. not have they they are not registered lobbyists but nor, I th- nor is anyone in their organization but i think the kilbergers in response to cooper's question presented their clearest defense and basically what michael cooper asked was how much time did you put into the proposals that you submitted to government? Mm-hmm. And they sort of saw this as the trap that it was. Yeah, which tells um, me that they were they were very briefed and very precise about what they said. So. Very well prepared by their lawyers. Yes, um, allegedly. Which is, they said, not much work at all. Yeah, oh, 15 uh, minutes. It, it, was all, it was all copied and pasted. Uh, it barely took us any time. Yeah. Which is good, because I'm glad that we're doing back-of-the-envelope stuff that they had lying <laughs> around and just throwing a billion dollars at that. That's good. Which is a response that speaks to them understanding the 20% rule. Yes. So let's talk about what the 20% rule is in lobbying, uh, which, broadly speaking, is the threshold for in-house lobbyists. Yes. Or the threshold to require uh, in-house lobbyists to register with the Office of the Commissioner of Lobbying. Yes, because let's say you're an organization, like... Um, and, and it's often, it's very often misunderstood because it's sort of a bizarre rule. Yeah, and also there's a lot of confusion about uh, that rule and the 10% political activities rule for charities, sure. which is, of course, no longer in effect as we covered some time ago. By, by court decision. Indeed. Um, but there's a lot of confusion between those two things because they broadly cover similar things, but they're they're, they're very different in their application. So let, let me start with like a high-level primer on like lobbying in Canada. And start by saying, like, lobbying uh, is not and should not be considered a dirty word. It's how, it's okay. just, it's just people <laughs> engaging. I think people, people should wrinkle their noses a little bit. Th- this is what, respectable. I'm, I'm just quoting the commissioner. <laughs> this is what all the commissioner's reports say. Um, it's, it's people, it's stakeholders, it's people engaging with their government. It, no matter what form that takes. And, you know... It's very different in Canada and the United States. But let's let's move past that. The, the American um, lobbyists give you guys a bad name. Uh, yeah, it, incredibly different world. Yes. Uh, but I am not a lobbyist. No, that's as, true. As of course. I, uh, of course. You're under your five-year ban still. Which is so. coming up. Which is coming up November 4th. Of this year. 2020. Oh, I suppose so. Yes, because uh, you're all right there until the end. There's some degree of contention among former staffers as to whether or not it's 30 days after the swearing-in of the Trudeau cabinet or not. Um, I think you can wait a month. But, but it's, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Okay, a, a, well, a lot of, right, a lot of people good. seem to be under the, the impression that it's December 4th because some of the statutes say you're still employed by the government of Canada uh, for 30 days after as like a termination thing. Got it. Um, but the OCL seems to think that it is. The officer, Office of the Commissioner yes. of Lobbying. At least that's what their emails to me say. So that's what, uh, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm going on. Very good. So anyway, to circle back to the main point here. Um, so two types of lobbying in Canada um, as recognized by the Act. There's in-house lobbying and there's consultant lobbying. Consultant lobbying is when you hire a lobbying firm and these people are lobbyists. Yes. They, they work for all sorts of different companies. And their rules for registration are basically, I mean, they're different, but they're also somewhat immediate. That if you're partaking in lobbying and they're being paid for it, they need to register and they need to fill out the forms. Yeah. 
And they're being paid specifically by a third party to lobby. Yes. Like, to- specifically to do that job. So it is very cut and dry. There, There's no ambiguity about whether <clears throat> that is that person's job for the third party. Ye- I, I say this in contrast to the in-house thing. Yeah. Where- if you're doing a... Well, there can be some ambiguity a little bit. Um, as to whether or not you initially engage in lobbying, like sure. how your contract is written, whether or not you're just providing advice and sure. then that flows into lobbying. Yes. You have to be very aware of where the threshold is yes. for registration. It is a much clearer on-off switch. Let's, like, any, any, anything that's defined as like lobbying communication, you got to register if you're a consultant lobbyist. Yeah. Is what I'm saying in terms of the yeah, right, it's, right it's binary. Yeah. Yes. Really at the end like of the Like a light switch, one might say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yes, for in-house, it's significantly different because in-house often, like I said, you're talking about small organizations or often one person is doing, you know, wearing a couple of hats and, and lobbying communications, that stuff is part of their job. There is a threshold at which they have to uh, register and it's when within the organization, 20% of an FTE, a full-time equivalent, is being spent slash used on lobbying. So what you're... Your use of FTE is critical there because a lot of people misunderstood yes, this. Yes, this is and very it, widely misunderstood. And it was misunderstood in some of the remarks before the committee that people seem to think it's 20% of their time, often the CEO or whoever yeah. it is. It is any and person's, says, any combination of persons. I work 80 hours a week. I do not spend 20% of my time doing lobbying. Yeah. Right? But if you have uh, your assistant drafting whatever it is, the time you spend on the, well on the plane coming to that meeting, things along those lines all go towards that 20% rule. So the goal of the 20% rule or the reason for it exists is sort of what you were alluding to, that lots of small organizations engage in sort of ad hoc lobbying. Yeah. And it's really to ensure that they don't, um, they don't face sort of an onerous reporting requirement yeah. when they just you know, have something that happens in their neighborhood and they want to talk to their local MP about something. Yeah. That doesn't trigger the... Or putting together a pre-budget submission, for instance. Actually, that would be another good comparison here. No, because that's public. Oh, yeah, fair That would fall under the public consultation. That is a fair... Yeah, that's another one that we'll talk about. Yes, Um, that's a fair point. But... What's interesting with the 20% rule is there's all sorts of... Getting a meeting to discuss a pre-budget submission. Let's put it that way. Sure. sure. There, there you go. <laughs> as long as it's not before the committee. Yes. Um, around the 20% rule, it's sort of economic terms, there's all sorts of distortions around it. So one of the distortions um, any, is... This is always the case with any bright line is that it's, it turns into an exercise and people getting it. So Facebook was claiming. So this was back during the ethics commission investigate ethics committee rather uh, investigation into uh, big tech back in 2018. They had uh, Kevin Chan, who was the public policy person at Facebook, come and testify before the committee. And one thing that was brought up uh, in a very memorable clip uh, by Charlie Angus was that um, you know they had all these meetings with ministers and that he had all these good pictures of himself with you know showing bill morno how to do facebook live <laughs> and uh you know it was kind of funny because he, he said something like uh you know when i um when i have to change the light bulbs in my office i don't call the ceo of general electric to come show me how to do it <laughs> and i got a good laugh from the room uh good all good stuff all around but the point there was that um there were a lot of these cl- closed door meetings going on uh and you know they could say that it was showing them how to use Facebook Live, but at the same time, you know, there's an interest in the, this public transparency, and if you don't know what's going on in those meetings, and they're taking up a lot of your time, you should probably just register. And in the end, that is what Facebook decided to do. Yes, so it was sort of a public pressure campaign that got Facebook to register. Yes, and I'm actually amazed that that has not happened yet with we. But Facebook's defense was sort of twofold. It was, yes. one, I think we're under the 20% rule, and it was, we are, when we're engaging with government, they're reaching the example out to us. Of, well, they're reaching out to us, which isn't really as valid of a defense as I think it's been portrayed which, in the public sphere. Yes, and this is actually new to us because we were just refreshing ourselves about um, what exactly is communication for the purposes of the Lobbying Act. And uh, we took a, took a wee little look, and uh, our understanding initially was that when the government reaches out to you, it is not actually... Uh, lobbying communication for the purpose of the act, but what we found out, according to lobbycanada.gc.ca, the, the good old lobbying commission's website, 
Government-initiated activities that fall within the definition of communication include roundtable discussions and other types of advisory and stakeholder consultations on policy proposals. It goes on for, for some length about this kind of thing. But then it has some specific examples that would require registration, including communication about a specific application for a grant, contribution, or contract. <laughs> Which, in Facebook's case, not relevant, but in this present case, much more so. But, but that makes perfect sense, right? If, because if you think about the Wii example, like, they submit a proposal to the government. Two, say, in fact. Or two, yeah. Yes. But just, Which they just, just had already written, just lying around. Sure. <laughs> and let's, let's talk about that in just a minute. Yes. Um, and then the government starts calling them to talk about the proposal. Yeah. Well, it doesn't make sense that that's not lobbying, right? right. Just because the government is initiating that conversation because... The, yeah, there, there's some two-way there that's going to happen. So the, the, the government-initiated communications thing is about public yeah. side communications, stuff that is in public, transparent. So basically, uh, like stuff like a parliamentary committee, which wouldn't really be a government side of communication anyway, if, by the literal reading of it, uh, is like one extreme. And then, like yes, being invited to a, a cigar brunch with Seamus O'Regan, I, I expect would be the other side. I don't know why Seamus there. It's <laughs> totally irrelevant, but... Any ministry you care to choose uh, would be a different thing entirely. Uh, which goes back to the example I gave a moment ago of pre-budgetary submissions, which are published on the website. So there's an existing amount of uh, public transparency there mm -hmm. that basically substitutes for um, registration. Yeah, exactly. So it, like, it, is, it is, in fact, more transparent than the communication reports you'd otherwise have to file because communication reports filed with the lobbying commissioner are generally pretty vague. Yeah, they don't really have... They have vague subject areas and not really much on actual y content. They basically tell you who's in the meeting... Well, not even really. Um, to an extent, who's in the meeting uh, with the little asterisk I don't want to get into there. Yes. Um, just for purposes of time. Um, and then sort of broadly what was like yeah, it's very often, like, like subject economy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like international trade or justice or something. It's pretty uh, pretty broad. Um, but going back to the 20% rule and the distortions around the 20% rule, um, one of the ones that you alluded to um, was that, or that, that we briefly mentioned, but I want to come back to, um, is the Kilberger said basically this was all a copy and paste job. Yeah. There isn't clear guidance, and I don't know that it's ever been fleshed out, that copying and pasting from old documents doesn't count towards your time yeah. for the purposes of the 20% rule. Yeah. Let me give you an example. You write a big, long proposal, and you submit it to the government of Alberta, right? That has no bearing on... Uh, federal your federal your, yeah. fe your federal necessity to lobby. If you control find on that document and replace government of Alberta with government of Canada, and then you submit it to the government of Canada, I really doubt the lobbying commissioner upon second review would find that to be like... Five minutes worth five of Five minutes towards your 20% rule. Yeah. yeah. So that's the defense they used. I don't buy it. And I think it's one that warrants scrutiny or at least clarification by the commissioner, but we don't have a lot of cases on the 20% yeah, rule. Yeah, and, like, I think, like, when we were talking about this before recording, what I mentioned there's like, one analogy here is in the Elections Act, uh, when you're between elections, like, often you'll have campaigns that will reuse lawn signs, for instance, and every time they have to put, they have to count the expense of those lawn signs, even though they were bought, you know, 10 years ago in some cases, towards their cap sort of the market rate rule yeah exactly so it you know i don't know like when like tan said we just don't have like any precedent on this precise question i think it's an interesting one uh i also think you know i i think there's room to think about whether that was true <laughs> that they just had this stuff sitting in a in a desk drawer somewhere i certainly think for, so they submitted two proposals one of them was about social entrepreneurship in that one, I could sort of see that you'd have this lying around somewhere. The other one is much more tailored yes. to the circumstances, and it was like 20-odd 20, 20 pages, and I was just like, I just don't think they had this sitting in a desk drawer somewhere. Or if they did, it would have been very different, and it would have taken a lot of work to modify. I, whatever. This is purely speculation on my part, so... But so uh, allegedly so sure. just uh let, but let, i found that very hard to believe let's not go too far down the speculative no, path not. but let, let me talk about some other distortions there right because if you translate that document in-house you are more likely to hit your 20 percent rule yes if you are flying for a meeting with the government of canada from vancouver as opposed to toronto 
you are racking up hours towards your 20% rule. It creates a lot of really weird distortions that it operates around sort of this time-based Whereas system. if you're walking over from Elgin Street, for <laughs> yeah, instance. No, yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, one of the other ones that's just worth noting is if you hire a uh, government relations firm that is registered uh, and doing the work for you, it doesn't count towards your 20% rule. Mm-hmm. This also as, as an in-house, though you'd still have a consultant Correct. registration. Yeah. Yeah. Just to clarify. So a, a little bit different, right? Yes. Um, if someone else is doing the work for you is basically how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's covered under someone else's registration, which I, I believe was the case with Facebook. I, I'd have to double check that, that they had a consultancy registration, but not an in-house registration. It had been inactive for some time at that point, though, yeah. as I recall. Oh. Not that I have a very <laughs> memory of this, but... Uh... <laughs> Uh, perhaps. And then the other just distortion, because I think this is commonly misunderstood about the 20% rule, and it's a bit of a weird loophole. Um, we talked about the five-year ban before, but it's the five, uh, and it's what we were alluding to, it's the five-year ban for former... Uh, Public office holders. Yeah, so I was trying to remember if it's uh, designated or reporting, depending on which... D- D- reporting. DPOH yeah. for uh, the Lobbying Act. Yeah. Former DPOHs. The five-year ban that prevents them from being a lobbyist, either in-house or, or consultant, consultant uh, following their exit from government. But if they lobby, uh, engage in lobbying conduct, but do not hit the 20% rule, that is kosher, which seems incredibly weird. As an in-house, obviously. As an in-house. Yeah. Consultant, there is an absolute prohibition against registering as a consultant lobbyist. Yeah. But you can engage in... Um, below the below the 20% line yes. as a former RPOH. So just to give you an example of this, you can um, quit as chief of staff, join an organization with which you are not under the one-year cool-down period, and you have not had direct and significant, <laughs> direct and significant dealings <laughs> yeah. with. Official dealings, um, And then basically casually lobby the government um, on things within whatever particular conflict of interest screens are put up. Yeah. So uh, subject to a a bunch of other rules and and laws, but that's plausible. Um, I mean, yes, it's worth saying that the directing significant official dealings thing is pretty far-reaching because, as we discussed before, it's... And and the switching sides. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Like, what Etienne's describing, like, it is a loophole, but it also has a lot of lines of defense there. And I think, like, what you'd be left with is something that actually looks fairly innocuous in practice. Sure. In terms of where that loophole would have yeah, been. I, yeah, and it depends. I mean, I guess you're hoping for uh, individuals who are not looking to do this in malicious ways, and yes. organizations generally are not looking to hire people to do this type of thing in malicious ways. Um, but... Yeah, and actually, let, let's... I think you've got the it open for a reason. Let's discuss one example of, of where this loophole went bad. Or it seems like largely unintentionally, but... So, if you look on the Lobbying Commissioner's website, there have been As one does. a little over a dozen cases of investigative reports um, filed by the Lobbying Commissioner um, in since 2011. Actually, a lot of them were in 2011. It does seem that way. Um, a whole ton of them were in 2011. Um, and so, it averages, you know, less than one a year, if that. Um, in the past... Since then. <laughs> yeah. And, and there have only... So, uh, another precision... There are not reports for the ones where it's referred to and prosecuted by the RCMP. Um, so I think there are four cases that I'm aware of in Canada where the RCMP have prosecuted under the Lobbying Act. Um, and that's subject to, I think, a, a, a $200,000 fine or up to two years imprisonment. I don't think anyone's ever been in prison for it. And no one's gotten that high of a fine. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what... Uh, 50000 was the highest we saw. Yes. Yeah, for Bruce Carson, famously. I was trying to remember what... Uh, uh, conservative MP who went to jail was under Dean Del Mastro. He was under the Elections Act. Yes, um, thing entirely. Yeah. Yes, ignore that. Yeah, um, ignored. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come to we'll come to one of the people I, one prosecuted do, under the Act in a minute. I do want to say one thing that's interesting. There is the differences in penalties between the Lobbying Act, which carry can carry significant monetary penalties, and the the Conflict of Interest Act which has virtually no penalties except for minor administrative ones for sort of technical violations. Yeah, $500 infamously. Yeah. Yes. Um, but in practice, it's a $100 fine for per offense. Yeah. Um, so 
What we're referring to is the case of uh, Trina Morissette, who was a former staffer under the Conservative government, who then went to work for the Red Cross of Canada, um, and was eventually found to have been in violation of the Lobbying Act. Well, I guess not found, um, as in her case was referred to the RCMP. The RCMP decided not to pursue it based on public interest, um, and then the commissioner wrote a report under the Lobbyist Code of Conduct. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, no real consequence, no punishment, um, but it's virtually the only example of um, litigation or jurisprudence around the 20% rule. Yeah. And what the story of it is, is effectively she joined the organization in a role that did not necessarily involve much, if any, um, lobbying, um, but it grew into an organize, uh, into a role that involved lobbying. Um, Without anyone really realizing it or registering. And so it sort of became this inadvertent snowball into lobbying to breaking that 20% rule. And And thus your five-year ban. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And and thus the five-year ban. Um, But, I mean, you you mentioned in our pre-discussion about sort of mens rea, and that's perhaps where uh, this sort of fell off. It seemed inadvertent. It didn't seem malicious. It wasn't for you know, obvious personal benefit, any of these things. Yeah. Um, when it's in-house and in this way, you know, the individual was already engaged with the organization. It wasn't to um, further her own personal interests, et cetera. No, and nor was it to, like, leverage her, right? She wasn't, like, golf buddies with the prime minister or yeah. something. And, like, yeah, it's, like, it's a, yeah. Th- I, I this is pretty much even, as even innocent a different scenario. government. Yeah, it was pretty much as innocent a scenario as you could concoct under these sets of rules. But there, which I suspect is why the RCMP ultimately decided not to prosecute. Um, but but what's not helpful the, about this case is it doesn't establish a ton of jurisprudence around the twenty percent rule well, yeah. and some of the, sort of the the edge case scenarios so that we're discussing. My suggestion to Etienne is that he should find a way <laughs> to violate the rules in exactly the way that we want specified, and then go through with the whole uh, like litigation process, and that way we can figure it out. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. If know? anyone wants to take us up on that who isn't a TN, I guess, uh, please it? do. Uh, please do not break the law to, for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, believe, <laughs> I believe that's a crime. Yeah, just don't do not do that. Counseling an offense. Yeah, let's uh, let's just scrub that one from the record. But no, actually, that's no, fine. But just don't do that. Um, so as an on segue into uh, our, our next item on the agenda, uh, which is a piece that was making some... Uh, Would you say a minor waves. splash? Yeah, I made a little bit of a splash. I had several people email it to me. I think it's only a splash in like people who exist in our universe. Yeah. Very much in the uh, the staffer and the ex-staffer community uh, is a piece ugh, by ugh, Jamie ugh, Carroll. Don't say that. Uh, the ex-staffer community. <laughs> oh, my God. Former staffers. I don't know. Uh, um, is a piece by Jamie Carroll, who... Perhaps is the same person as James Carroll. <laughs> I um, think I think you will find that indeed they are convicted of violating the Lobbying Act for uh, failing to register on behalf of an organization and got a fine of twenty thousand yes. dollars. He had some things to say about the Lobbying Act. He sure did. Uh, uh, but we'll, I think we're, we're not talking about those, are we? We're talking about uh, we want to talk about his most recent. Well, article. but his most recent article is about the five-year ban, right? Um, which is yes. fundamentally also, about, bring, about also the lobbying act. Night hoods, which uh, I think he's just a treat boy who likes to get <laughs> pats on the head. Uh, but there you go. So, what's the thrust of the the Jamie Carroll piece? Uh, who, which is entitled "Misguided Approach to Political Staffing Set the Stage for Most Liberal Woes." It appeared on National News Watch on July twenty eighth. I will say first up. Do you want to read the background very, blurb on him as well? He's a former liberal. Yeah, uh, what's well, right? The, what he's the former director of the Liberal Party of Canada, who worked for a number of candidates, MPs, ministers, leaders, and a prime minister. Several of whom came very close to firing him for giving him advice they didn't want to hear. It makes more sense when you read the article because that's kind of part of the. At any rate. I, I will say off the top, very poorly written. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but for real, like I don't know, like if there is any editing going on here, not evident to me. But uh, yeah, man, not good. Very bloggy, like two thousand two era, right? And I, I once got. About, I will lay this aside. I once got about a five percent on my psych paper for that being the thrust of my critique of a of a journal article. There you go. And uh, 
I, I didn't do well as a result, so no. your your analysis is insufficient. Uh, please, well, I, please continue. I, I think we, we shall continue. Um, so, uh, do you want to you want to lead us off in, in what your your big take is here? Sure. So this? his his piece basically has two parts. Uh, it has uh, I mean it name drops the kids in short pants TM. Yeah, which is like all right. Um, but I guess that's the politically correct version. Tony <laughs> Soprano voice. Um, but basically, it's a piece, and this is not a particularly new observation. It's that the five-year ban can have uh, a detrimental effect. The five-year ban under the Lobbying Act can have a detrimental effect on the staff that are available for roles in ministers' offices, mm-hmm. which I think is a perfectly valid critique of the five-year ban. Um, it's It blocks people from careers afterwards, particularly say you're an energy expert, right? And you want to go to work for the uh, Minister of Natural Resources and lend a hand. Um, You're an economist in energy. Um, Well, afterwards, if you engage closely with a lot of the stakeholders in that wheelhouse, your, your capacity to work afterwards by both the cool down period and the five year ban is somewhat compromised. And I can speak uh, firsthand from that as a young political staffer, as a young boy in short pants, uh, coming out of the Harper government, my ability to get a job in Ottawa was severely hampered by the five year ban because a lot of the public policy jobs, public policy slash lobbying jobs require the ability to register. And it's worth saying too that like, I, I, I sympathize somewhat with Etienne here in the sense that there is a, a, a world of difference, really, between an Etienne-level, uh, you know, relatively junior comm staffer and, like, you know, Jerry Butts, who is running the government off his cell phone. 100%. So, like, I can see why, the you know, the full force of that, you'd want it to apply to the, the really senior folks who are really dialed in, who have, you know, the entire government uh, on speed dial in various capacities versus... Someone whose party has just gone into opposition, they're, what, you were, what, 25, 26 at the time? Sure. Um, and, you know, like, you'd worked there for, what, 18 months? Yeah. Yeah, all, like, all it's like, I, maybe there should be a bit of a sliding scale there on, like, how steep those prohibitions are. That that would seem somewhat logical to me, but there you go. So, I, th- I think we agree with this, and this is, I, I honestly, I've talked to pe- members of all parties, and I think everyone agrees with this, but people are just afraid to amend... I mean, yeah, no, it this government. Yeah, and it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. This is, government is can never, never do going it. to amend these rules. Loosening lobbying rules never—it's not a headline you want, right? Like, no matter what party you are. However, I I think where his analysis fails is that this had any part in the we controversy. He's yeah, sort of, it's kind of convenient shoehorning. His thrust is saying basically there aren't enough good political staffers in the government. Who yeah, it's, prevented this from happening. It's blocking people out of these important roles. The five-year ban is preventing good people from getting into these jobs, which is preventing government from having the advice it needs to hear. Yes. And where I think that analysis falls apart is I think this government went out of its way to hire um, basically the people that they wanted. Yes. I actually, uh, there's two well, pieces. Yeah. One, the analysis and the difficulty of hiring people because of the five-year ban becomes more difficult later in a government. Yes, because you've got, your lead time is going to take you further and further away from the government. If you have a majority government, year one, like the Trudeau government had, you know, people are looking at, a four-year career in the upper echelons of the Canadian government, that opens a lot more doors than it closes, frankly. Yeah. Um, so they have tons of options, and you and they were able to hire um, very good people. A lot of those people peel away, and I think as governments age, you have governments where you're left at the end of the day with the envelope lickers. He calls them, like, newly wed or nearly dead is his sort of... They're either really young or really old. Yeah. And these are the people who aren't bothered by the five-year ban. I don't... There, there's definitely some truth to that because it's hard to be mid-career in Ottawa and sure. jump in and out of political offices because of things like the five-year ban. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that was necessarily the case with this government. No, the pick yeah. The litter in who it staffed, um, you can hire the government the best was initially... People, you can hire the best people in the world. If you're not actually going to listen to them, you've, you've got a whole other kettle of fish on your hands, right? And I think that that's... Like, I think what everyone will say about this government is that... It is, and we've discussed friendship caucus before, for instance, of people who have been close to Trudeau and the Trudeau family for like 10 plus years. 
is that it's quite insular in who it listens to at the top level. 100%. So, like, even if... And, and frankly, if you... I get the sense, looking from outside, that if you're not a go-along-to-get-along kind of person, you're not going very far. And I think we saw that illustrated uh, in no small degree by the whole SNC scandal last year when you had two independent-minded uh, ministers get turfed for, you know, not really wanting to eat a shit sandwich. This, this government is a government that took a lot of its campaign staff with it into government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for Katie look, Telford and Jerry Butts yeah. were actually not only liberal campaign staff, they were Justin Trudeau leadership campaign staff. And it's worth saying that... Ministers in this government yes. were Justin Trudeau leadership <laughs> campaign <laughs> staff. Yes. Um, thinking of Navdeep, da- uh, Navdeep Baines in particular. It is worth saying that when they came into government, they came in with much less like infrastructure and apparatus, despite being the Liberal Party, than any government really had in quite a long time, except for like maybe the Diefenbaker government that I can think of. And intentionally. Yeah, well, but also it was because they had 36 seats. So they just didn't have much of a government in waiting. They didn't have the OLO. They didn't have as much of that stuff. No. So they had to bring in a lot more with them, as well as that being a preference. No, d- disagreed. Largely okay, very preference. Good. Largely because preference. you still had, even after 10 years, um, you still had an Ottawa that right. was that is full yeah, and they of shut out Mark the old yeah. and, Kretz, and Kretzian era staffers who have now moved into senior positions in organizations across Ottawa yeah. um, throughout the civil service because the rules for uh, bridging from the civil service and back were more lax back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so these people, there's a lot of these people with very, very deep roots in Ottawa. Yes, but no um, Trudeau pedigree, which is... But no yeah. Trudeau pedigree. And, and, yeah, and the and it, Trudeau pedigree is a very different branch of the liberal family than the Martin and the Kretzian one. Yeah. And they had sort of a generational bias of like, we want the young blood, we want generational change. And so they drew basically everyone from... Uh, the sinking ship that was uh, Kathleen Wynne's Queen's Park. Yes. And yeah, they, a lot. they sort of rebuilt Kathleen Wynne's uh, <laughs> government within um, Langevin, the, the building formerly known as Langevin <laughs> yes. Block. I do, I do think that there is like, that decision is defensible on one level in the sense that like the last liberal government went out under, I think it's fair to say, a bit of a cloud. Uh, and I think that bringing in a bunch of former Craytan Martin people would have sent precisely the message they didn't want to send, which I think that they they really wanted to signal that they were a new kind of liberal party, right? Um, and that they weren't just the, the Crane Martin dinosaur goon wars. Uh, but it left a party with no, no, absolutely. A, with I, no I, adults in the room. No, no look, one, I, I don't disagree. Everyone beholden to the leader and no one willing to speak truth to power. And no, absolutely. That, that I, I think it was, been... everything has trade-offs, right? But I think had they come in and said, like, all, all your faves... Who who had pictures of them, blurry pictures of them in Montreal Gazette, dropping off briefcases in cafes? They're all back, baby. That would have also not been good. So, so I just want to make that point. I think it is important that the context matters. There. Yes, but no. I think that matters more for cabinet than for the back rooms of Ottawa, because no one knows who. Politi- yeah, yes, who the know. political staff were outside of Ottawa in terms of actually running the government and like how that optic actually looks. Frankly, no one cares. Um, across Canada. The government made a very conscientious choice, even among its more uh, uh, experienced cabinet ministers. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah. It, they knocked off Stéphane Dion first chance they could. Um, <laughs> John him. McCallum got knocked off first chance yeah. that he, they could. Carolyn Bennett is kind of languished. She's uh, the last Lawrence one McCauley. standing. Lawrence McCauley from his cold dead hands. Yeah. Um, Ralph was... Ralph was the one real, like... The superstar of the yeah, game. Yeah, he was the one real, like, continuity factor there. But that's because I think they could not have done it without him. Well, but that's the thing, yeah. right? Is everyone looks at Ralph and they say, what an absolute superstar. It's a shame this government's going to have it. And it's like... But on the staffing level, there was no comparator. Like, yeah. There was, like, it was like... No, all the staffing versions of Ralph cannot be in this I government. Kinda, I, yeah. But the government can't run without Ralph. It's like... What if there was a Ralph <laughs> but who just in every office? I disagree with you that no one Maybe cares. Maybe in the role of chief of staff. Yeah. I disagree with you that no one cares. Uh, I think it, you, you go to any Facebook comment section and lo- control F Jerry Butts, and I think uh, you will find people who still think he runs the government. Uh, I, I just I don't really think that's true. 
or it may have been true 10 years ago, I think they would have found reasons to get mad quite quickly. I think it would have been very easy for the opposition to paint it as, you know, continuity, liberal government in a lot of ways. But whatever, right? I think that's an open... It's a question. It's a so, point of debate and not really... So, so let me ask you. Sure. Besides Jerry Butts, who arguably had a... Supersized. Uh, supersized yeah. public profile. Yes. Uh, Unwisely well for as, him and for the government. As well as increasingly Kitty Telford, yeah. in particular because of her... Uh, involvement in the whole we thing um when you go to those facebook comment sections that i know you spend long <laughs> <tons>. hours crawling <laughs> do you find a lot of people talking about like the director of policy to the minister of agriculture or like i, I think we're can't say i do no, no you don't or what, what about the the chief of staff to the minister of heritage well, actually, actually, that one is a bit more contentious because she was, uh, well, the former one. Yeah, was only a you know this. Only for a long you know time. this. So this is a particular axe I have to grind. But no, fair enough. No, th- that's my point, right? Is like there, are, we're losing sight of the fact that there are like 500 political staffing roles across a government, and we're focused on like two, th- yeah, the literal <laughs> two. Yeah, no one even knows the director of policy to the prime minister. It is it is virtually only those top two roles: the principal yeah. secretary and the chief of staff. That people are name dropping on Twitter. Yes, um, I mean for good reason because they they do have a very you know driving role. But agreed. Your point is taken. Agreed. Your but point is yes. very well taken. That just to move on very quickly to the second part of uh, Mr. Carroll's um, piece, he he basically makes the point, and I again I agree this is a good point um, that the chief chiefs of staff, chiefs yeah. of staff right as as we've just spoken about. That it has become the trend for chiefs of staff to be appointed from the center. Yes, which to me is kind of crazy. Um, and it's sort of a who are you working for moment. Yeah. There are chiefs of staff who are attached strongly to the minister. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Jessica Prince. I was just going to say her, yeah. <laughs> who was the chief of staff to Jody Wilson-Raybould. At Veterans. Um I don't. Was she with her at Justice? She wasn't with her at Justice. She was well. at yeah, Justice. So she went with. She was uh, a yeah. lawyer. It was remarked that it was incredibly weird for her to be yeah, going to her to with JWR to veterans, um, because she was, you know, somewhat seen as maybe going to be sort of the DOJ chief. Yeah. Um, but she very clearly went to veterans and stayed with her minister, and that was obviously a move that was approved um, by the center at the time. Yeah. But I, I think it also sent a signal that she was staying with her minister yeah. um, through thick and thin. So an example of a very loyal chief of staff. Yeah. The one um, who had been appointed by the center to begin with. Yes. Yes. Um, but there are other chiefs of staff who stay attached to the portfolio uh, and provide... Um, continuity. Continuity. Which, and I think that's not dumb, right? Like, I think there are good reasons to do that because when you have very complex files... You have a new executive team come in in the form of a new minister and a new chief of staff, new people even below that level, right? Like, files are complicated. They they were obviously spinning plates before you got there, and then they got to keep spinning them while you you know find out where the light switches are. Uh, like, it, it's not entirely dumb to me that you would want continuity in a file, uh, relations with no, stakeholders, in, that, you know, knowing where everything is. It's important, is especially at the political level. Value at the yeah, political especially level. at the political level, because the public service is always going to have a lot more of it than you and you need to be ready to ask the tough questions of the public service to ensure that your minister is getting the best advice from them that they need to be getting and that their decisions are getting an adequate political vet and a lens put on them to make sure this makes sense for the political direction your government is going in like and that stuff all makes a ton of sense and like i i don't take a ton of issue with the idea in con like the concept of it i think the execution as you said leaves a lot to be desired in the sense that it's there's a loyalty question that's always there so um, it's a loyalty question who yeah. is this person ultimately working for yes yeah are and ultimately they, it's the people who appoint them right? are they like, happy to cut me loose yeah um as soon as i am inconvenient to the center yeah right do they know more are they shielding me from things that i should know blah 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 yeah um so it does create doubts and empowered chiefs central chiefs fundamentally the more powerful the chief is the less powerful the minister like often there's yeah. a relationship there yes um don't get me wrong there's a perfect balance to be struck and they can both be powerful yeah um but on sort Just of the continuity file yeah. and stuff like that you can have it where the minister is 
an empty shell and sort of just goes back to the chief of staff and says, what are we doing today? What's the, <laughs> what's the prime minister's office told us to do? What's what's our next step? When when do I go to bed? Sort of thing. So Yeah. And and so at that point I'm with him on. Yeah, I just wanted to illustrate the other side of that argument because I, I hear that talk like this is a Andrew Andrew Coyne hobby horse that people don't appoint their own chief of staff and like I totally get it. Like I 100% understand both sides of that argument, but I, I find that the other side of it doesn't actually ever get aired. So I figured if I would air it at the no, very least. That is that is fair. Yes. Uh, I think that'll probably do us for today. I believe that's everything. Well, very good. Well, uh, everything. Well, yeah, there's more stuff, but, you know, we couldn't cover. Any happened in, like, Kyrgyzstan mm. recently that we, we haven't touched on? Not not, not a big Kyrgyzstan guy. <coughs> uh, do you want to do uh, our, our beer review today? Sure. Uh, we had the Crispy Kvike. Is that, is that yes. how you pronounce it? Yes. Um, from Flora Hall Brewing. Just, right down the street. Just down on Flora... Hall Street. Flora no. Hall Street. <laughs> <laughs> not near the Flora footbridge. Um, no, named after a person and not named after the street. The, the, the bridge, yes. not, not the beer. Yes. Um, tell me everything you know about Kvike East. Oh boy, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> tell me everything. Uh, Kvike East is uh, native to northwestern Norway. A uh, strain of yeast has been used in farmhouse ales there for a very, very, very long time. Um, it is... Very noted for its uh, was a like it's very tolerant to heat. There's a word for this, but you can ferment uh, really fast with Quike because it is so heat tolerant. You can basically ferment at like 30 degrees, which for beer usually you're talking about like you know fermenting at like 14, 12 in in those waters. Um, so 30 is like quite very fast, and you can basically do it uh, a lot faster because of that. Uh, which means you can make a lot of beer. So I, don't know, it's quite... I don't know if it's because of that. I don't know if that's where necessarily. Well, it's because it's more active and like eating the no, sugar fast. It, it is a very aggressive yeast. Yes. I think the temperature. I mean, I'm not a brewmaster or anything. I don't know that the temperature correlation is. Well, the, I will. The direct will link, point I would draw. I will link the really excellent article up to like yeast. That, I, I think uh, it can ferment at a range of temperatures, yes. which makes it very well, versatile. Yeah, it's more tolerant of the higher ones, and it does yes. ferment faster at that uh, temperature. Other yeasts get off yes. flavors yes. when fermenting or outside or die. Yeah. When fermenting outside of their sort of ideal. Yes. But anyway, it's very range. interesting. Is rediscovered, uh, I guess, which is a very complicated term. So <laughs> go ahead and just either commercially discover. There's plenty of, of discussion about this and uh, about the appropriation of Norwegian farmhouse sales online. And I'll actually link a really good article uh, about Kvike East in case anyone's really interested. It is interested fascinating. In it. It very, is actually really, really very cool. Very yeah. geo. It, very, very scientifically interesting, very historically interesting. It's it's great. So uh, All of that yeah. to say, it's sort of like the latest trend in yeast. There's like four main strains and you'll likely see it from your local brewery. Yes. This beer I found in particular. Um, it's a lager. It's yeah, it's that's, uh that's what it's sold as. It does not have a ton of, of like the, the character that I'd be looking for typically, but I really like saisons and IPAs, so it's technically an ale, but this unique beer has a clean, crushable lager like flavor that thanks to a blend of Kavikis and Bohemian Pilsner malt, uh, that was floor malted just like in the old days. A there true crispy boy. A true crispy boy, nice. Don't age. Is me. that boy with an I too? It is. Nice. It is. <laughs> that's pretty funny. All right, well, that'll do it for us today. You can, of course, listen, or follow us at ShortPantsPod on Twitter. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever fine podcasts are downloaded and subscribed to. And, of course, you can leave us a review there, which is always much appreciated. Uh, that will be it. And, and if your review makes fun of Laurent, I'll read it on the air. Very good. And <laughs> I will extend the same courtesy to you, Tian. So there you go. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.